Lagoris moved easily across the sandstone ledge, in spite of the loose scree that covered it. But he paused to look back at the fifteen soldiers Antiochus had insisted he bring along. Since silence was paramount, he pointed to his feet, and then from his eyes to his feet, so they'd know he meant to watch carefully for each foothold. If one of these fools slipped and rejoined the balance of his compatriots via a 500-foot vertical retreat, those overconfident soldiers in the Acropolis, still a thousand feet above them, would surely hear and spy them. Not only would his promised reward evaporate, but they would rain stones down on them. A little sweat formed on his brow, the mental picture of his skull being reformed by a small boulder, brought him to a halt once again. But not for long. He still had a long way to go. And he had to go so slow, showing the leader each handhold, every place his feet were to go, and each man showed the next. It was excruciatingly slow, and every minute increased the odds of their discovery. The soldiers carried hardly any weapons. Their success depended entirely on stealth and surprise. Sardis had good reason to think its rebellion would meet with success. The pass up to the gates was so narrow that a very few men could guard it against a vast horde. Of course, they didn't have to. You couldn't get enough troops in that small space to assault the gates. It was impossible to capture Sardis. He almost laughed out loud as he thought of it. Here he was, helping do the impossible, capture Sardis. He'd heard that expression since he was a kid. Son, that's impossible. You might as well try to capture Sardis. His dad, well, no one, understood why he loved to climb the cliffs of Crete. Lagoras, the climber from Crete. That's how they'd introduced him to Antiochus. It was great to be famous, but also frightening. The words that were used to ask him to do this were framed as a request, but it wasn't. Get up this mountain, continue over the wall, bring these fifteen men with you, or die. That's what he meant. All because you can't capture Sardis. No, somebody would have to open the gates and let you in if you wanted to take that city. Only problem being, of course, that a fifteen-hundred-foot cliff and the wall that topped it stood in the way. But that was their job. Climb on the side where nobody's looking. Get inside and open the gate. And why, pray tell, do you think nobody watches the cliff on that side? That's what he wanted to say. But he also wanted to keep breathing. <laughs> so he bit his tongue and said yes. All he had to do was make it, and he was a rich man and a citizen. If he climbed back down, it was execution. To be discovered, well... And then they had to wend their way through the entire fortress, kill a few guards, and open the gate wide. Suddenly his contemplation was interrupted by the sound of sandals sliding over pebbles. His head jerked around and his arm involuntarily extended, but he was too far away. He sucked his breath in as he saw the feet of one of the soldiers flying off the ledge. He nearly screamed himself. But these hardened fighters never lost their composure. The one he thought lost simply extended his arms, and the men on either side caught his wrist without, it seemed, ever looking. And their incredible strength, it was clearly more than just legendary, they seemed effortlessly to elevate their confederate to solid footing. 
Maybe Sardis can be captured. They went out close enough that they could hear the revel of lively parties. These people were so overconfident, they were so sure of the impregnability of their citadel, that they didn't know the danger they were in. Soon a great army would be flooding their streets. The Gorus glanced at the men with whom he had been climbing for the last six hours. True, they were the cream of the crop, but as he cast his mind back, all those men had the same bulging biceps, the same cold indifference to death. As he climbed over the wall, empty of any guards, he knew. All these people who had laughed at the army outside their gates would soon, very soon, pay the ultimate price for their insolence. They were dead already. The story I've just told you is true. There really was a man named Lagoras from Crete who really did scale a 1,500-foot cliff trailed by 15 soldiers. They really did sneak up behind the city of Sardis over the wall and into the Acropolis. And yes, he was even sent there by the third Antiochus. Most of the rest of the story uh, came out of thin air. I made it up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it, though. And it could have happened that way. There's one other part of the story that was true. The saying, capturing Sardis, that really used to mean achieving the impossible or that which seemed impossible. See, this, this wasn't the first time somebody had scaled the cliff and wall to open the gate from within. Uh, in the days of Sardis' greatest power, about 300 years earlier, its leader, Croesus, led a great army. So powerful was this army that he actually decided to attack Cyrus of Persia. One battle was enough to convince him he may have erred. <laughs> Besides, winter was coming on, so he marched his army back home. Now, he figured Cyrus would do the same in the other direction. He did not understand Cyrus. The much-vaunted cavalry of Sardis was destroyed in the battle that shortly ensued, and those still alive hightailed it back to the fortress of Sardis with Cyrus on their heels. They made it, and they knew they were safe, that they had cheated death, that they were wrong. Fourteen days later, one of Cyrus' men scaled the heights and opened the gate. And if it wasn't armies, it was earthquakes. In the lifetime of some of those who heard Jesus' words, Back in AD 17, a decade before Jesus started his earthly ministry, an earthquake that Pliny called the worst disaster in, in human memory brought many in Sardis to a very sudden end. Life and death. The people of Sardis should have understood, especially the church. Huge temple to Artemis. We have strange things happening with their audio, so sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, they decided to build this huge temple to Artemis, one to rival the temple in Ephesus. But they overextended themselves, and they were never able to finish it. Even today, it stands unfinished, <laughs> a testament to their foolhardiness. And there's this related data point. The people of Sardis were well known for a process of dyeing wool, in fact, they claimed to have invented it. And they were a center of the entire wool industry, dyeing, weaving, and making of plush garments. One of the most curious facts concerning Sardis involves a Jewish synagogue 
built not too many years after this story. It's one of the largest synagogues ever excavated. It's huge. The curious part, besides its obvious Jewish elements, it incorporates Greek elements, like an entire gymnasium complex in a Jewish synagogue. These are things that most Jews would have shunned and certainly never put into their house of worship. But the Jews of Sardis didn't mind mixing Jewish belief with Greek religion, with Roman mythology, with pretty much whatever. It's called syncretism. Taking on and mixing in various local religions. And sadly, both of the churches we will look at today seem to have done the same thing. They wanted Christianity, they watered Christianity down until it was acceptable to everyone around them. So Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Like the people of their own city, famous for their arrogant overconfidence, this church was dead even while it stood for what only Christianity can claim. Life. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You see, their, their preachers talked about the truth. Church probably had an empty cross on the wall like we do. Christ died on a cross, but he's not there anymore. They didn't say it like living people would. It was just a part of their liturgy, something they parroted every week. If a neighbor asked them, do you really believe Jesus rose from the dead? They'd probably say, well, um, you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> they didn't really believe, so they didn't really live the good news. Their lives weren't changed because of what they heard. They weren't alive. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So from the opposite end of the spectrum, they're told the same thing as the Ephesian church. Remember. Remember what those who started this church believed. Remember their works. Turn around. Do them. There's a deadly consequence for those who will not Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Like the thieves who climbed the wall and stole their freedom and many of their lives, Jesus might at any time capture Sardis. They think they are alive, that no one can touch them, but they are dead men walking. And they don't even know it. Most of the people of the church in Sardis were dead men walking. Fortunately, this was also true, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There are people there with you who are getting it right. Copy them. <laughs> that, for sure, Jesus is saying. They have not soiled their garments. For a people passionate about clothing, 
what could be worse than having soiled garments? <laughs> you think you look so nice in your tuxes and your evening gowns, but look down, you're covered in putrid muck. Your garments are soiled. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We said last time we looked at the Revelation that there was a progression in Jesus' letters to the churches. Well, those that were troubled. And it's true here too. If Sardis was in trouble, in danger of crushing defeat, the church in Laodicea was moments from being wiped from the face of the earth. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Jesus is the amen, the so be it, the end, the reason, the purpose of all things. He is faithful. He is true. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is the message. And the Laodiceans said, oh, um, yes, well, I suppose so. Let's not get too excited here. I mean, we want to be aware, but let's not get hot-headed. <laughs> Let me stop here for a minute. We'll describe Laodicea, a little bit of their history. If Sardis was rebellious in its arrogance... Laodicea was proudly politically manipulative. <laughs> they swung whatever way the wind blew, aligned with whoever gave the greatest financial and political advantage. You see, it was a strange place for a successful city, no place for an impregnable fortress like Sardis had. It was pretty important back then. They were close to, but not by, a famous mineral hot springs that was renowned for its healing powers. Great to take a hot soak in. They had to pipe it into town, so it was only lukewarm when it reached them. They were close to, but not by, a cold spring that produced delectable drinking water. No way to get it to the city cool, though. The valley over which the city stood was perfect for producing some of the finest, soft, raven black wool close enough to make them also famous for clothing. But really, is that enough? Why is Laodicea located there? Because there were two major trade routes that crossed right there. And they took full advantage of that. It was a business town. In fact, it became a major banking center. They became fabulously wealthy. With all that money... They even developed a school of medicine that became quite famous. It was connected with Minkaru, the god of the valley. At that school were developed some very effective compounds for healing complex diseases. Most famously, Phrygian powder, a compound for curing eye diseases. They could help people keep and regain their sight. 
Well, we got a picture of who they are. City water was lukewarm, but they were rich. They could restore sight, and they produced the finest clothing. To the church of that town, Jesus says, you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Their water had minerals in it, and it was lukewarm. Spit, yeah, drink it, and one could say vomit, which is another way that Greek word could be translated. Not a good picture of one's relationship to God. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Like Sardis in Philadelphia, Laodicea had suffered a devastating earthquake just a few decades earlier. But unlike those other cities, they shunned help from Rome. They rebuilt their own city to a magnificent state, rich, able to save sight with the finest clothing. But Jesus lays out the reality, wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, blind. When Jesus was still on the earth, a rich guy came to him and asked him, how do you gain eternal life? Jesus talked to him about the basic instructions of Scripture. And the guy claimed to follow them unconditionally. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away. Sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In the Germany of Hitler, when the Nazis had firmly seized power, they were imprisoning pastors at an astonishing rate. At one point, 500 were arrested in a single day. There was a woman, Ruth von Klitz-Retzow, who had sheltered many and helped the families of others. She wrote to a pastor imprisoned in a concentration camp, We live in strange times, but we should be eternally thankful that poor, oppressed Christianity is acquiring greater vitality than I have ever known in the course of my 70 years. What testimony to its real existence? She's saying that persecution is purifying the church. Well, who would stay in the church with the Gestapo knocking on your door, right? But why did the Nazis so hate true Christians? Why were the people who called themselves Christians in Laodicea not persecuted? Why did the glorified Christ threaten to spew them out of his mouth? The Apostle Paul wrote, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. True Christians who live like Paul are kind of like a mirror if they bear the image of Christ. 
And each person sees their real selves when they hear the message of Christ. And in a sense, they grasp the truth of their own future. Let's say this another way. All humans hear their own guilt when they hear of Christ. The question is, what will you do with that? Those who place their trust in Christ have their guilt placed on Christ. And he suffers for it, dies for it on the cross. And in exchange for our guilt, he gives us life. But if one hasn't trusted Christ, one is simply reminded that they are a dead man walking. Someone who must pay the penalty of their evil deeds. Dead man walking. Do you know where that expression comes from? It's used in prisons. The guards call it out when a man is walking from his cell on death row to the place where he will be executed. A dead man walking. The aroma of Christ from death to death. And don't forget, Jesus is talking to people in a church. Don't die, he said. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They thought they were rich. If anybody was well-dressed, wasn't it them? Who could see if not them? But they were blind to the real, spiritual, sitting in church, If they had had spiritual eyes, they would have been appalled at their own sight. Jesus was. But he says, open your eyes, let me clothe you, take my wealth. Those whom I love, wait, (laughs) what? Those stinking, blind, poor beggars you love? Of all the seven churches, the only other one Jesus explicitly says that he loves is Philadelphia, the exemplary church, you know, the good guys. Even those living in sin, even when they are putrid hypocrites, Jesus says, I love you. (laughs) Oh, first, wow, what grace, what patience. (laughs) Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Well, and we kind of talked about this before. It's just wonderful to be loved, isn't it? <laughs> ah, that zealous and repent goes with the reprove and discipline. Huh? But be zealous and repent. Get excited about the gift of the cross and turn your life around. There's this beautiful story that John records in his gospel. It's about this man, born blind, whom Jesus heals. Now, everybody knew... This sort of thing was all about sin. Either the parents sin so that the kid is condemned to a life of rejection and alienation, or God knew the man would sin, so he struck him blind before he was born. But what are you going to do when a blind man sees? I mean, you got to read the story. It's just great. But the point today is that the blind man gets it. But the Jewish rulers, having seen their guilt in Jesus refused to believe they were the problem and blamed it all on Jesus, of course. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, 
Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> they argue, of course. And finally they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Yes, 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 this guy gets it. The Jewish rulers who have rejected Christ, well, they treated our formerly blind man like the Nazis did the true church. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. When one is zealous to repent, Jesus will seek them out, and he will give them eternal riches, clean clothes, spiritual sight. What about those who refuse to believe? Jesus said for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have guilt. But now you say we see. Your guilt remains. I'm very sad. dedicated to the Son of God. There are crosses on the walls. They mumble the words once again, not even hearing what they just said. They don't see Jesus. Maybe they think he's a good man, but nothing more. Maybe they think he'll make them rich. Maybe they think he calls us to be socially responsible. But the idea that he calls us to repentance... That he rose from the dead and can give us real life. That they don't understand. So they don't hear him knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. And he with me. This great message of love was first shared with whom? Oh yeah, a bunch of dirty, blind Poor hypocrites. People sitting in a church that was dead. If anyone hears my voice, you hear the voice of Jesus. He wants to be your friend. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light. Of men. This Jesus, this Son of God, wants to sit down with you. 
be your friend. I mean, is there not someone with whom we could share this message? I know hearing of Jesus brings your guilt into sharp focus. Join the crowd. We're all guilty. We're all dead men walking. They think they're in great shape. Blind? Who? Me? Dirty? Poor? You must be thinking of someone else. But deep down, this irritating truth jabs at them. It keeps wiggling its way up and stabbing them. I don't want to know. I don't want to care. I just want to live my life. Jesus says, I know you do. But what you don't know is that you're a dead man walking. You have no life, only a poor imitation, a squalid, stained, blind existence. And I love you too much to leave you wallowing in your own filth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If you will only listen, you can hear his voice. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You don't need to be dead anymore. On your way to eternal death, the people you love don't need to be dying anymore. Do you love them enough to tell them that? Are you okay to let them remain dead men walking? We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.